Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. Once again, I am joined by Cal the Kaiju guy. What's up, everybody? And we are joined by Elder Statesman Ian Sinclair as well. Hi-yo! <laughs> <laughs> so, this is an unscripted show. <laughs> it truly is. Today we're going to be talking about a film that is considered not only one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time, one of the greatest sequels of all time. It's part of one of the. It it it, it means a lot. We're going to be talking about T two Terminator two Judgment Day, released in nineteen ninety one. Was written, produced, and directed by James Cameron. Of course, James Cameron has written, produced, and directed quite a few things, namely Aliens, Titanic, the Avatar series, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was distributed by TriStar, which TriStar is known for doing for, for distributing Rambo, Short Circuit, but has also distributed Three Ninjas, Matilda, the Look Who's Talking series, and the Starship Troopers series. Not many of the Starship Troopers movies are good after the first one. It was released July 3rd of 1991. It was produced on a budget of 94 to $102 million. We'll get to that in a little bit. And brought in over $520 million at the box office, making it, at the time, the third highest-grossing film of all time, as well as the highest-grossing film of 1991. Of course, the basic premise of the movie is that it's been years since the first Terminator came back to try and kill Sarah Connor before John was even born. Now, John Connor is 10 years old, and Skynet sends back an advanced model T-1000, the most state-of-the-art prototype machine they have to kill him while the resistance sends a reprogrammed t-800 model 101 again portrayed by arnold schwarzenegger to protect him it was critically unanimously praised nearly it won multiple awards and again it's considered one of the best films ever made it is seen as tremendously influential to the sci-fi genre as well as beginning the transition in film from practical effects to a more computer-generated imagery effects. It spawned a giant franchise, including a TV show, books, comics, an amusement park ride, like video games. It, 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 it's, it's tremendous. And I, I remember I saw this movie the same day I saw the first Terminator movie, when I was like seven or eight years old. Uh, it had, of course, long been out by that point. What about you, Cal? Whenever I first saw the movie? Yes. Ah, big surprise. My listeners will know this is no surprise in a hotel room. <laughs> you know, that's where so many of my uh, my childhood movies come from because of my traveling father and all that. But uh, as I told you guys before we even started, uh, started recording, uh, I didn't know what it was at first because I had a toy. Um, you know, one of the toys that they did. Uh, I showed the picture to, to you guys and Ian also had that figure. And, you know, he was wearing, like, the biker outfit, and half of his face was tore off. Uh, He had three different arms. One was just, like, a regular humanoid-type arm that uh, you could see the metal on it and stuff. And there was one that was, like, a mandible claw. And then there was another that was kind of like a bazooka. Me being, you know, just a little kid, little standard little 90s boy who wanted a robot toy. I got my robot toy. Didn't think it was part of a movie or anything. And at the end of the movie, well, uh, well, we were just flipping through channels in the hotel and we came right across the end of the film, right whenever uh, the T-101 or the T-800, whichever one you prefer to call it, um, whenever 
he says there's one more chip and he looks over and we see half of his face is tore off him. Me and my brother are just spazzed out. We're like, holy crap, like that's your toy. We didn't know this was from a movie or anything like that. And so, yeah, that, that was my introduction to the Terminator franchise in general was seeing the Terminator lower himself into the molten metal and dying. <laughs> Damn. Ian, I feel like Spoiler you. Spoiler alert! <laughs> this is a thirty, uh, a thirty-two-year-old movie at this point. Ian, I feel like you probably saw this in theaters, didn't you? I did not see it in theaters. I saw it uh, shortly after when it was on VHS for your video archivists out there. Uh, Anybody that was born prior to two thousand will have a good idea what that is. For those of you who do not, a VHS was a square plastic. A rectangular thing that had a roll of film inside of the movie was printed on. Of course, Ian also see, remembers... film was this stuff that would go inside of like a camera or something. It would have pictures and everything. See, a camera was this thing that used to be separate from your phone and all that. Yeah. So, you know... Yeah. Ian, how do you work a projector? I mean, you had to have one of those in your living room, right? I mean, Edison taught me, but I can't remember. So... <laughs> Like, I'm not going to lie. I take offense at that one because we used to use projectors whenever I was in school. Yeah, yes, I, I, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to work those things. Hey, so we let had... me tell you something. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> it's two of us. Hey, 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 I had projectors in school too. Thank you very much. Anyway. The T-800 Model 101 well, was again portrayed. Did, did you explain how you first saw the movie? Uh, he did. Uh, okay. He said he saw it on VHS after it came out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. The T-800 Model 101 was again played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, I don't really feel like I need to go through Schwarzenegger's uh, filmography. You probably know. Um, amongst other things, he was also a former governor of California. He has five children. That's a, an issue that happened in his life. As well as Chris Pratt being his son-in-law now. Sarah Connor was played by Linda Hamilton once again. Now, Linda Hamilton had her film debut in Children of the Corn, but she was also in Dante's Peak and King Kong Lives. Television-wise, she was in the TV series Beauty and the Beast, while also appearing on The Line, Chuck, and currently appearing in Resident Alien. John Connor was played by Edward Furlong. This was Edward Furlong's film debut. He would go on to appear in also Pet Cemetery 2, Brain Scan, Little Odessa, uh, Pecker. Probably my favorite film he was actually in is American History X. Have you, have you guys seen that film? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No? I don't know that it'd be something you would want to see. He also appeared in court several times for several? various offenses. I was getting there. Did you mention Detroit Rock City? Yes, I was getting up oh, to that. Okay. I was on here. Sorry. As okay. well as Crow, okay. Wicked, Pra Wicked Prayer, Stoic, The Green Hornet, Winter Rose, and Detroit Rock City. The T-1000 was played by Robert Patrick. Now, Robert Patrick has also been in Die Hard 2. He was in Wayne's World, where he also portrayed the T-1000. Uh, he's also in Last Action Hero, Double Dragon, Decoy, Striptease, Faculty, Spy Kids, Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, Ladder 49, Walk the Line, etc., etc., etc. He's also... Flags of Our Fathers, Peacemaker. Yes. yes. <laughs> He's also the brother to the leader of the, the band Filter. Yeah. Uh, the character of Dr. Silberman was played for the second time by Earl Bowen, who passed away actually on January 5th of this year. Uh, he was in Kojak... Eight is Enough, MASH, Family Ties, Punky Brewster, Growing Pains, L.A. Law, Golden Girls. He's mostly a television actor, but he has had the occasional film role, including in The Odd Couple, too. Miles Bennett Dyson was played by Joe Morton. Now, Joe Morton was also in Speed, Lone yeah. Star. He was in The Pest, which I freaking love that movie. Uh, Blues Brothers 2000, which I fucking hate that movie. What Lies Beneath, <laughs> Ali, American Gangster, Home, 
Godzilla King of the Monsters, where he played an older Albert Brooks from uh, Kong Skull Island. And also, he was in the DC Extended Universe as Silas Stone, the father of Cyborg. Jeanette Goldstein, who played Vasquez in Aliens, and Xander uh, Berkeley, who was in the film... Uh, er, bleep, sorry. Who provided multiple voices in Ah, Real Monsters, played Janelle and Todd, who were John's foster parents. Uh, Castillo Guerra, who was in The Mexican, was Enrique, which was Sarah Connor's his Mexican friend that had the weapons and everything else in his little stronghold. Uh... Danny Cooksey, who was probably best known and only known for appearing in Salute Your Shorts on Nickelodeon. Bobby Budnick. Yeah, that's right. Uh, was John's friend Tim. Dean Norris, who you'll recognize now as Asex Schrader from Breaking Bad, was the SWAT team leader as well. Uh, Michael Bean did return as Kyle, Be- Kyle Reese in the director's cut. His scenes were cut in post-production. I'll get to that as well. Also, in addition to the two red-headed twins that you used to see a lot in the 80s and 90s, Linda Hamilton is actually an identical twin. Her identical twin sister portrayed the T-1000s impersonating her on the scenes where both of them needed to be on screen. I did not know that. I was today years old. <laughs> I, I, I did not know. Holy mackerel. Yep. <laughs> okay, then. Now, the first Terminator was a surprise hit. Um, they, It was made on a budget of about $6 million, and it pulled in about 80 somewhere in that neighborhood. Like, And it, the whole idea was they wanted to go with like a sci-fi slasher-type character with that film. And again, it was a surprise hit. It confirmed not only Schwarzenegger as a lead actor, but James Cameron as a credible director as well. Uh, Schwarzenegger had wanted to do a sequel, telling Cameron that there was plenty more to be done with this franchise in general. Should have been only one more to do with that franchise. We'll get to that. And James Cameron often actually spoke that Arnold Schwarzenegger was more enthusiastic for a sequel than he himself was. Talks initially stalled in 1989, partly because James Cameron, while working on The Aliens and The Abyss, ran into some timing issues on when he was going to be writing script. However... The more pressing issue is that both James Cameron and Schwarzenegger refused to work with the current rights holder, Hemdale Film Corps. Hemdale's co-founder had tried to alter the ending of the first Terminator movie against Cameron's wishes. He wanted to end the first Terminator movie after the semi-truck explosion and give Kyle Reese and John John Connor's mother, Sarah, a happy ending. No! Hold on. (laughs) <laughs> to the point, to the point that the week before they were to film everything that happened in the factory, the Hemdale co-founder went to the set while Cameron was not there to tell everybody, hey, this is the last week, we're wrapping after this, we're not going forward. When Jim Cameron found out about this, he attempted to assault the co-founder of Hemdale. I don't know. Like it, it, it very know. much, very closely led to a fistfight that was only stopped when... Cameron's at the time girlfriend, later wife, later ex-wife, Gail Ann Hurd, physically restrained him. It was, it was. You, you ever seen a baseball game when an umpire and a manager get nose to nose? That's about what it was before she got a hold of him. I'm speechless. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Unfortunately, this meant that the sequel could not go through as Hemdale had 50% of the rights. In addition to that, Cameron had sold half of what was left to his, at this point, ex-wife Gail Ann Hurd for $1. Mm-hmm. 
That was one of the conditions for him to actually yeah. direct the film. Yeah. Yep. That was that was part of the settlement as far as all their divorce goes. By 1990, James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Gail Ann Hurd, and Stan Winston of the Stan Winston oh, yeah. Studios were all suing on unpaid profits, amongst other things. Due to all of this, Hemdale was experiencing tremendous financial strain. Cameron and Schwarzenegger convinced the heads of the production company, Carol Co., which was the eventual studio that would make Total Recall, to buy the rights. It cost them $17 million to acquire the rights before any development on the second film was done. So they were already $17 million in the hole before the film could even begin. And people, $17 million in the late 80s, early 90s is not $17 million today. Like, no, that, it's, that it's, was, it's, it's, that was more. that $17 million back then. I mean, like, just spitballing, I'd say, like, close to 100 give or take. Like, no, it, I, it, I it was pretty significant. <laughs> now, in order to recoup the loss on this, James Cameron was told point blank, this film will proceed with or without you. We have, because they needed to make money off of this, or it was going to go in as a, as a total net loss. So they're like, whether you are going to be in on this or not, we are going forward with this. Because at this point, Carol Code now owned over 55% of the rights. So they were going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That included whether Schwarzenegger wanted the return or not either. They were going to make another Terminator film, whether those two decided to work with it or not. He was also only offered $6 million for all of his work on T2. James Cameron? James Cameron. <clears throat> In order to get this all done because of the growing cost, it was a collaboration of multiple studios, including Carolco, but also the Studio Canal, who would go on to produce movies like JFK, Universal Soldier, Free Willy, and probably most prominently amongst those, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, Lightstorm Entertainment, which is the vast majority of James Cameron's films, have been produced with Lightstorm because Lightstorm is his company. Yeah. However, they've also produced Solaris, Attila, uh, Alita Battle Angel, I'm sorry, and also Terminator Dark Fate, which we will discuss that one a little bit at the end of this episode because there's some differing opinions in this room on that film. Yes, there is. Pacific Western, <laughs> now known as Valhalla Entertainment, also was involved. Now, I've mentioned them before several times, actually, because this company also produced Tremors, Ang Lee's Hulk, Water Dance and Armageddon, and is probably known best now on television for producing The Walking Dead. Terminator 2 had a quote unquote ghost budget of $60 million at this point. This was a ghost budget mainly due to the fact that with Cameron's work and name, etc., they were expecting it to end up costing more. By the time all was said and done, which I'll get to that as well, this was the most expensive film ever made at the time. TriStar wanted this movie out by May 27th of 91 to get it out by the Memorial Day weekend. To that end, they gave Jim Cameron six to seven weeks to write this script. That's it. Cameron worked with his co-writer from the first film. The first two weeks, they initially wanted to get a baseline story establishing the relationship between John Connor and the T-800, which his co-writer actually initially thought was a joke. When he told him that the T-800 was going to be coming back in this film, but this time, as a protagonist, he thought he was messing with him. He's like, there's no way that you can take that character from that first film and have this now as a good guy. At the time, it was un- it was unheard of. It was. It was. But, like, I mean, it, it's, it's one of the greatest, like, twists. switches yeah. in, in cinema history. To that end, it had to veer away from the sci-fi slasher theme. 
honestly, you can almost consider this film rating aside. It's a family film because the, the, the Terminator, Sarah and John form an unconventional family. And that is the emotional heart of this film. Uh, he wanted the James Cameron specifically wanted this bond like that and compared it to how the Tin Man was the heart of everything in The Wizard of Oz. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> now, James Cameron's initial concept had both Skynet and the Resistance sending back two T-800s, one programmed to help, one to kill. Both of them would have been portrayed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. However, Wisher, who was the co-writer on the first film and the co-writer on this film as well, thought the idea would end up being boring once it actually got to the screen, as well as potentially visually confusing for the audience and decided that, you know, we need to move on from that to which that end James Cameron was like, well, how about a larger, like a super terminator? This would have been like a seven foot tall, giant, massive, like it, it just wouldn't have worked because the, the whole concept of a terminator being an infiltration unit Shaq is not going to be able to walk into a normal Walmart and not draw attention. I mean, it would already it's already difficult to be like he's an infiltration unit and then they hire Arnold. Right. Like he kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. So to get someone else even that bigger. sticks out even more. True. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, it just wouldn't have made any sense. Wisher then spoke <laughs> to James Cameron about this and was like, how about now that technology has advanced, why don't we use the concept you had initially came up with for the first film? Because the original concept for Terminator 1 was involving the T-1000 model, as well as a T-800. They just didn't have the technology at the time to do that. Right. Uh, this The draft they ended up writing on that involved the Skynet T-800 being destroyed before the end of the first half of the film. Which would then necessitate Skynet. I don't know how they would know this would fail. If they knew it was going to fail, it kind of begs the reason, why the hell would you send it to begin with? Would then send the T-1000 in order to finish the job. To that end, James Cameron, due to frustration, very nearly removed the T-1000 altogether from the film. Because he and the other guy were just butting heads too much on this. He ultimately decided not only to use the T-1000, but figured it'd be best suited to use that as the sole antagonist of the film. And I think that was a good decision. Absolutely. And, and, and also the, the visual contrast between Robert Patrick, Schwarzenegger. Patrick looks very unassuming. Oh, oh trust me, we're going to get to that too. Uh, the idea of having the T-1000 disguising itself as a police officer in order to lower suspicion of the people that would be around it was also chosen because this would thematically represent how authority figures seem to lose their humanity as they go on, while the T-800... Are we talking about current themes? In, at the time... <laughs> It may be more thematically relevant now, but at the time it was still relevant. And this would contrast with the fact that the T-800 was learning and developing his own emotional spectrum over time as well. Wisher wrote the first half over the first four weeks while sleeping on James Cameron's couch, while Cameron wrote the latter half at the same time. The problem here, James Cameron was not considering budget as he wrote his script. No. Yeah. Not James Cameron. <laughs> Initially, this led to some issues that ultimately resulted in many, many scenes not only being 
cut and not filmed, but the ones that were filmed were cut for time and pacing, and certain things didn't even make it off the page, including there was supposed to originally be a subplot around Miles Bennett Dyson that would have had his character be a much more prominent character throughout the film. Also, Sarah was supposed to have a survivalist camp that she was a member of that she would bring John to to keep him safe, which would lead to an absolute massacre when the T-1000 showed up and ultimately would lead with John and Sarah getting away. There was initially a nine-minute-long opening sequence for this film involving the time machine being used to send both Terminators back in time that ultimately also was cut before it could be used simply because we're going to be going over time. Budget is becoming a problem. We have to move on on that. To that end, while they both then took their halves and collaborated with each other to try and fit this together, Wisher's advice to Cameron, because they were using industrial lights and uh, magic, was to confer with them on what would and would not be feasible with the animation skills that they had at the time. The first half of the film more or less played out how they wrote it out. Like, there's a couple of scenes that were cut here and there, and I'll explain a little bit about that when we get to the casting, because there's a casting thing that's going to just make you guys just... Because it did to me. Um, They wanted to use the first film... A lot of movies, when they have a sequel, they'll use that first front film for no other reason than to establish what characters you now see. They wanted to use the first film more as a character itself to this movie in order to really keep everything flowing and like explaining why things were, why Sarah was the way she was, John being in foster care and everything else. Uh, Cameron believed that Sarah's knowledge of the future would have essentially isolated her emotionally and causing her to isolate herself physically from the rest of humanity, which leads to her, you know, taking up a survivalist, learning what skills she needs to do to do this and becoming not just self-sufficient, but almost like she's becoming like a machine herself. Like she's almost becoming a Terminator herself. because She's losing her humanity in her haste to prevent humanity from being destroyed. And they really wanted to contrast that with how she was portrayed in the first movie as well. By the way, I may have already told you this over the phone. How old do you think Sarah Connor was supposed to be in the first film? How old was she supposed to be? I thought she was supposed to be like in her early 20s or something. Sarah Connor is 18 years old in the first Terminator movie. I mean, I've always assumed like 21, 22, something like that. She was 29. She was uh, bio- <laughs> uh, canonically 29 years old in T2 because there's a scene when the Terminator is going through like his files and you see people's names and whatnot. Sarah Connor, age 29, is right there. So canonically speaking, she was 18 years old when the first movie was made. I wasn't too far off. <laughs> they also decided that it'd be best to actually separate John and Sarah before the movie had even began to increase tension. Like, John's already in foster care. James Cameron really conceived... <laughs> so when it came time to conceive like how John's personality was going to be and how he was going to talk to people and everything, uh, Cameron conceived all of that and wrote all of his notes down high out of his mind on ecstasy. What? Yep. (laughs) He wanted him to appear like he's a child of the future that does not have a set future because he knows what he's supposed to become, but he doesn't want to become that. He thinks that it's not going to happen anymore. Uh, They also wanted to use the the threat of nuclear war to influence his very nihilistic approach to his, his 
foster parents and wanting his mother to love him, but just, <clears throat> yeah. No, high on ecstasy while he designed all that for John Connor. He, and this is where it really gets funny when you think about how the rest of the movies have gone. One of the reasons why James Cameron eventually came around and really wanted the idea of the Terminator being the protagonist in this is that he did not want this movie to really just be repeating tropes from the first film. Hmm. The fact that James Cameron was not involved in almost any of the other Terminator movies, you can kind of tell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a joke that every single Terminator movie after T2 is just the original movie told in a different order. But uh, He wanted, from a story and character standpoint, he, he wanted to opt to keep not just the T-1000's dialogue brief, but he wanted to keep Schwarzenegger's dialogue brief as the Terminator so that the, it would be up to the audience to really infer what he was thinking or what he was trying to convey when he was talking. Because he's... He's a machine, but he's starting to learn with the whole thing. And there's something on that as well. Uh, they spent three days refining the script after they had gotten everything together. The final copy of this script was still warm when they boarded the plane to head to the Keynes Film Festival to announce the film was in development. Wow. That's a pattern here, trust me. <laughs> Initially, Schwarzenegger struggled with some of the scripts. Certain words like polyalloy were very difficult for him to say. Schwarzenegger's English had gotten better by 1990. It wasn't great. It's still not great, but it's much better now. Well, keep in mind that just in like the late 80s, he had to have like speech coaches on sets with him to help him with his lines. So he also had like films where he was... 87 to 91? Like, I mean, yeah, you're going to be a little bit better, but there's still going to be some spotty parts there. There's also films where he was <clears> dubbed <throat> over. Oh, yeah. He also expressed some concern over the character being decidedly non-lethal this time around because that's one of the whole things with John and the Terminator is that you can't kill anybody anymore. You know, and that's why he shoots the dude in the leg. He's like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, you'll live. Like, that's hilarious. Uh, to him, this conflicted not only with his identity as an action hero at that point, because most of the people Schwarzenegger fought in these action movies, <laughs> he killed oh, yeah. in increasingly outlandish fashion. So the idea of this one not killing anymore... Especially when the first time he portrayed the Terminator, he killed everything he came across, just about. Except for probably the luckiest person in the entire franchise, and I messaged you about this when I was watching the first Terminator movie. When he goes to uh, get the phone book with the page that has the Sarah Connor in, he just grabs the Hillbilly Jim-looking dude and throws him out of the damn phone booth. Doesn't kill him. That is the luckiest person in that entire franchise. Dude, with the rest of his life, they're going to laugh let me tell you all about this asshole this one time. Right? Like, drag me. has no idea like, what, 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 he, what just happened there. Like, like, side note, when I was a kid, I actually thought that was Hillbilly Jim. It was not, but lifelong wrestling fan, so. Uh, to that end, James Cameron was like, with all of Schwarzenegger's concerns, he asked him to trust him. Schwarzenegger said only one thing. Just make me cool. That's all he asked for, was just make him cool. Funny enough, that hasta la vista line, uh, Edward Furlong added that into the film because that was something that Cameron and Wisher and others would end phone calls with to each other. Nice. Furlong thought it'd be great to put that in the movie as well. Uh, of course, Schwarzenegger was interested in returning. I mean, he's the one who wanted it to be the most. He, he also thought that with the character appearing to be more complex and sympathetic... He found that very difficult at first to portray. 
He because I mean he's now he's supposed to be a fearless emotional machine that's a hero and that's not killing people. It was difficult for him to get around that. Also, he extensively rehearsed any and all action scenes with the head stunt coordinator in order to minimize any explosions or fire effects that were used around him. Schwarzenegger had a very tight filming schedule with other films in the 90s. So naturally, he would try to avoid getting hurt however he could. Yeah. He was paid between 12 and $15 million for his role. That was a significant amount that the studio actually could not afford to pay him. So what the studio did instead was they gave him a financed Gulfstream 3 jet, which was worth about $11.5 million, and then paid the rest of it over the next several years in installments. I'll take that trade. Right? (laughs) We can't give you the money, but we can give you your own private jet. Now, when it comes to Sarah Connor, James Cameron refused to recast her. You know... In addition to this movie, which we'll touch on a little bit more, um, Linda Hamilton did not have an easy time on set for the first film. Right. And as such, there was a possibility that she may not choose to return. James Cameron had potential uh, backup plans in place if she chose not to return, one of which he actually used in T3, her already being dead. Um, Negotiations were very long. However, this did get expedited by James Cameron telling the studio, who was the one who was dragging out the negotiations the most, that he can't finish the script without whether knowing whether or not she's coming back. Fair point. Uh, she got paid $1 million for the role. This was more than she made the first time. First time around, she made $45,000. She, she was having a career slump at this point. True. Yeah. However, she was a little disappointed in the sheer disparity between hers and Schwarzenegger's uh, pay. Not that she felt she needed to be paid as much or more than him. She just felt that him making between 12 and 15 times what she was making was a little excessive. And to an extent, with how important Sarah Connor's character is to the films, as well as John, I can understand that. Okay, first of all, he did not make 12 (laughs) to 15 times more than she did. He got a jet. He got a jet. (laughs) So, just throwing that out there. Uh, And I was incorrect in my initial assumption. Uh, What I said earlier, whenever I said uh, $17 back then, was probably close to about $100. It's only like inflation has only doubled around right, that. Well, still, time. so I'd the, like thirty-four so million dollars, fifteen million back there. I just uh, that was possibly the top end of Arnold's pay uh, back then. I just looked it up, and that's the equivalent of about thirty-four million today. So should I take that? Well, uh, something else to consider about the whole Hamilton thing. Uh, you know, she was not ever a marquee name. No, she was not. I mean, I mean, no, even now she does not have an extremely extensive filmography. Right. She's never been in high demand. Right. Well, unfortunately, and I, I covered this on my own podcast. Um, That's right. You one, talked about the first Terminator what, movie, didn't you? What, uh, I don't believe the first Terminator. Maybe I did. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I'm talking about something else because she had starred in the original Terminator <clears throat> and then she was looking to be like, well, what's the next big thing? You know, okay, this movie kind of, put me on the map but what is the next movie that's going to make me well known and there was a, another actress that starred in a film her name is uh, Jessica Lang and she got made very famous from a certain King Kong movie that was made in the 70s and so whenever another King Kong film came about Linda Hamilton King said, Kong lives 
uh, maybe this one will work wonders for my career as it did Miss Jessica, and it did something to her career. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of went in the opposite <laughs> way than what she she wanted it to. So, yeah, by the time. And at, what year was she in uh, Children of the Corn? That was her first film, so that would have been, what, 81? Okay. 81, 82. Okay, yeah, like yeah, yeah. So it was way, way there. Um, yeah, she she was uh, she was having a rough time by the time this film came along. The character may have been pretty essential to the story, but her, herself, like, she didn't have yeah. a whole lot of star power behind right. her. Right, and, and like, you know, I mean, I, <clears throat> I understand, from the studio standpoint, I completely understand the disparity in pay. Because, I mean, there was no billboard anywhere that said, coming soon. Yeah, no, I agree. Terminator 2. With Linda Hamilton. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> like that man, was actually one of the selling points they tried with Dark Fate. <laughs> like the man got top billing. For a reason. He gets top check. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's just all it is to it. Now, once she was cast, at that point, James Cameron was able to continue with the script. And it was actually at her request that Sarah Connor's character be a little more crazy and a little more unhinged because of what she had gone through and what she knew was coming. Completely understandable. And also, she, by her own... And Cameron has confirmed this. She thought it would be more impactful if at times Schwarzenegger's T-800 appeared to be acting more human than she was. Mm, well put. One of the things they decided not to do, although they did test initially, was they were going to give her a facial scar. They decided not to go through with it because it would have been every single day, three to four hours, they would have had to spend applying this scar and there's going to be times they're going to be working around heat, times they're going to be working around cold, outside, they just it, for practical appliance reasons, they couldn't do it. That being said, she went through hell for her oh, physical yeah. transformation for this movie. She worked with a personal trainer three hours a day, six days a week, and ate a low-fat diet, losing around 12 pounds for it. She also trained in judo, had military training, firearms, things like that, with a former Israeli commando. During that six-month shoot, with all that being done, she would spend about an hour and a half to two hours with her 20-month-old child at the time, in addition to filming, and averaged about four hours of sleep a night for six months for that film. I'd do it for a million bucks. You did. You damn right. <laughs> <laughs> you, think, you think I'm going to have sympathy? Like, I would do it for a million bucks. <laughs> now, the T-1000, the initial person that was cast for the T-1000 <laughs> to the point that they had screen tests and they were sending him for wardrobe and everything. He had to pull out due to a motorcycle accident that broke his leg that required surgery and pins. Billy Idol. <laughs> in a 2023 interview, like this is the last few weeks, James Cameron was asked about that and he said, in hindsight, he was not the best choice. No comment. Like, I mean, the last <laughs> thing I can, the last time I can even remember seeing Billy Idol on screen for anything was the wedding yeah. singer. You know, so. like when Bill, Billy Idol's songs come on the radio, I turn it off. Like I'm not, I'm not a Billy Idol guy. Hey man, so I, the closest I, thing I, I like Billy Idol. The closest thing I ever remember seeing to Billy Idol on TV regularly was Spike in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that was intentional. Good call. Yeah. Like there's actually a joke in that where uh, Buffy is trying to find him and she describes him and the bar and the bouncer's like, yeah, Billy Idol wanted me and she goes, actually Billy Idol stole his look idea different. Never mind, it doesn't matter. Um, 
<laughs> Another person that was considered but believed to be too tall and ended up getting passed over was Blackie Lawless, the singer from Wasp. That okay? Did uh? I'm not even going to pretend to know who that is. I have no idea. Did myself. Cameron just have a thing about rockers? Or okay. Something? Yeah, he did, and we'll get Blackie Lawless. We'll get to that because oh. that is very important for the musical score. Robert Patrick was living in his car at the time and was actually on the verge of giving up trying to be an actor and going home when he got this role. He, upon meeting with Cameron, was believed to have this very intense presence that was needed for that character while also being physically, while being very fit and in shape, an opposite to what Schwarzenegger was. Schwarzenegger being very large, powerful, compared to like a tank, whereas Robert Patrick was more... Compared to like a Porsche or a Panther, as were. Yeah, he's, he's slim fit. Uh, the audition process that he went through, he purposely went in there with an emotionless hunting type persona, and did screen testing with that t- to see how his eyes and skin would appear and work with light. Also, he drew his inspiration from Schwarzenegger's initial portrayal from the first film as to how he should speak to people. But as far as like the movement, he observed the movement of very like. Predator-type animals, reptiles, bugs, big cats, sharks. He purposely kept his head tilted down to imply constant forward movement, as well as a military posture and a very fluid movement like a panther to try and contrast him, no pun intended, to contrast him with Schwarzenegger's work. To that end, he also worked with this Israeli commando, as well as a weapons master, and developed the following skills, which he maintains to this day. How much was he paid? Uh, I think he was paid about six hundred thousand. I'd do it for six hundred thousand. <laughs> he would go through two mile runs three times a day while developing for this movie. Uh, he learned how to sprint without heavy breathing. He learned how to overcome exhaustion. He learned to operate and reload weapons without looking or even blinking. He did most of his own stunts, not the major ones, but he did most of his own stunts, including one that kind of cracked me up when I got to it. No, we'll get to that here in a moment as well. There's a lot we're getting to within several moments. I understand. Some of which I've already we've already covered as we've gone through. It's the end fun fact segment that we're going to do. Where it's like, oh, not necessarily. Not, not necessarily. <laughs> James Cameron wanted an unknown for John because most sense. of the kid actors that were auditioning were either too well known or they were always trained to be overly happy and perky because that's what you want kid actors to be, and he needed something different than that. To that end, Edward Furlong got cast at the last possible audition that you could get cast from. He had to take acting lessons on set. He also had to learn some Spanish, learn how to ride a motorcycle, and learn how to repair guns as well. Remember me talking about uh, Dyson having a bigger role that got cut? We're coming back to that one, like I said we would. I never called you a liar. Huh? (laughs) 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 Almost said it. Morton believed that Cameron wanted a minority character to be integral to the future, whether it was changing it for one way or changing it for another. And to that end, he also chose personally to stay away from the rest of the cast. That way that it would keep that chemistry between Dyson's character and everybody else believably distant. Like, he's not part of this group, but he like he believes them. Dyson initially had a much more extensive role. This role was reduced because the initial choice for the actor turned down the role because it would require him to look scared. Who do you think it was? Denzel? Yes. 
Denzel Washington turned down the role because it would have required him to look scared on screen. Nearly 30 minutes worth of footage with Dyson was scrapped before it could be filmed because of that. This was going to be a very different film in aspects. That that and uh, I mean Morton also pretty much like hyperventilates for like three minutes straight. Yeah, he he passed out several times during filming because Cameron is insane with filming. I mean, he's not Kubrick level, but did you? Uh, Hold on. Uh, three months worth of pre-production had to be truncated in order to meet the release schedule, which is what threw Cameron to be very nervous about the whole process. Nervous. <laughs> one full week of this process, he would spend six to nine hours per day on his stomach choreographing vehicle scenes with toy cars and trucks, filming results, printing it, and sending it off to storyboard artists for approval. If it didn't match how he wanted to, he did it over again. They had no time to properly test the effects either. If the effects did not work, they had to work around them. Wow. Uh, principal photography began October 8th of 1990 with that $60 million budget. Production was long and arduous. James Cameron had a very short temper and was very uncompromising and dictatorial, as described by crew members. I believe it. His methods led the crew to make and distribute shirts that said, You can't scare me. I work for Jim Cameron. <laughs> I believe it was during production of the first film that, like, a pretty good chunk of the crew almost, like, not unionized in, like... They damn near revolted. But they pretty much come up to him and was like, you need to change your ways or we're all walking. He reduced multiple members of the crew (laughs) to tears in the first and second movies. Yeah, there's some horror stories about what he did on the first film. (laughs) Now, Schwarzenegger described him as Supportive, but demanding as a tag master, with a fanaticism for detail. Schwarzenegger was also born in Nazi-occupied Austria. <laughs> he might have a different look at this kind of a thing than others. But, and let's be honest here, I'm sure, you know, demanding is a word that a lot of people used where, like, yeah, he's an asshole, but he's my friend, and I make lots of money working with him, so, you know, yeah, he's just demanding. James Cameron <laughs> like, forced the entire cast and crew to work through Christmas to get this done. He persuaded Schwarzenegger to cancel multiple Christmas events as well as a visit with Bush Sr. to the troops in order to film this movie. Hey, man, it's hard to argue with results. All right, because... By day 101 (laughs) of production... we got Jingle all the way, so we got a Christmas moment with Arnold, so, you know... And Junior. (laughs) And Maria Shriver. (laughs) By day 101, both Schwarzenegger and Hamilton were very frustrated with the number of takes. Five straight days of takes of just close-ups of Linda Hamilton in the Dyson home. They were a little frustrated at this point. Many of the films had to be done out of sequence. And the scenes had to be filmed out of sequence. Oh, yeah. This frustrated Schwarzenegger because his character is supposed to be emotionally evolving. He was never sure what level of that he was supposed to be at until he would arrive on set. Like, okay, am I the kid's dad or do I still not like him? Like, you know, what's <laughs> yeah. going on here? Like, <laughs> the cinematography in the am first film... Or am I Uncle Bob? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The cinematography in the first film was <clears throat> mostly simplistic, if aggravating and frustrating with how he would treat people. Most of the time, he was able to shout directions during the first movie. Whether that was shouting over a distance or shouting in somebody's face, he was still able to do it. 
The second film was so expansive and daunting, they had nearly 200 walkie-talkies over as much as four miles worth of set in things being filmed at different times to try and get this done. Most of it was filmed on location. However, the bar that was in the the initial bar that Schwarzenegger first walked in, that no longer exists. That has been torn down. Funny thing about that, because of the filming schedule with that bar, there were multiple days of takes where they didn't bother telling bar patrons what they were doing. Some women came on set and saw Schwarzenegger wearing essentially a pair of posing trunks and asked what was going on. He didn't even miss a beat. He said, it's male stripper night. (laughs) Like... A lot, a lot of process went into that. The scene where the T-1000 chases down John's bike on foot, this is what I mentioned earlier. They had to be re- refilm that. They had to revamp everything because due to his training, Robert Patrick was able to chase down Edward Furlong on a dirt bike on foot. That's awesome. That's insanity. It's a Terminator. Exactly. <laughs> That's called dedication. To yeah. The, role. <laughs> uh, the Cyberdyne building was an abandoned office building that was scheduled for demolition, so they were able to do whatever the hell they wanted to it. But they did use real SWAT team members. They just had to embellish some of the tactics to make it look more of an effect. Uh, the steel mill that they used was closed at the time. Despite appearances of it being all hot and everything, it was actually completely frigid. It was full of catwalks dangerous and like multiple cast members nearly fell while making this. It was very, very dangerous to be done. The helicopter scene, which I'm going to let Cal talk about a little bit more, uh, took two weeks where they had to close down a stretch of the long beach highway every single night from 9 PM to 5 AM for two weeks straight. Do you think the residents of long beach were thrilled with this? (laughs) Cal, has a very high opinion of that scene. Um, the entire sequence from the moment pretty much the T-1000 gets into the chopper and is chasing the crew, you know, the, the good guys, is one of my all-time favorite stunts in film history. Yep. And I've let Emily watch Terminator 2 because I'm trying to get her, you know, more branched out with watching movies and all that. So I let her watch the original Terminator and then let her watch Terminator 2. And after that, like I told her prior to it happening, I said, this is one of my favorite stunts that's ever been in a film. I said, just letting you know, like hit play. She watched it, you know, it was over with. And no joke, y'all know Emily, y'all know who she is. She just kind of looks at me and she's just like, is that it? (laughs) I, I don't see the big deal with that. And I was like, what do you mean you don't see the big deal with that? And she was just like, we see that kind of stuff all the time. And then it clicked in my head. I was like, Emily, that wasn't CGI. I said, this was the 90s. That was a real chopper flying like under the overpasses and, you know, and Arnold like, you know, firing at him whenever he's Mm -hmm. in the truck and like going across and like hopping on the hood and just. That that is one of my favorite action sequences ever. And that, that one as well. I was like, baby. They really did that. Like, that wasn't... She stared at me for a minute. She went, show me again. So I rewound it. Watched it again. After it was done, she's like, okay, now that I know that, yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) They were three weeks over their their allotted schedule when they finally wrapped just the filming aspect of it. 
Linda Hamilton suffered permanent partial hearing loss due to the scene in the elevator at the mental institution when the shotgun goes off because James Cameron didn't tell her they were about to start and the shotgun went off before she had her earplugs in. So she lost, she permanently lost some hearing in one of her ears. Also, she, acting. she suffered from shell shock for months after this film. Oh, I believe it. Much of this, of what was filmed ended up getting cut during production due to scheduling reasons. Most of this was restored in what we now know as the director's cut edition of it. Like the, the smiling Terminator moment. Uh, one, okay, so I love that. I love that scene. Dude. That you mentioned it when he was first going into the lava and he did the thumbs up thing. That was added at the last moment. Linda Hamilton didn't like it. She thought that was a little too cheesy for how the rest of that movie had gone on. Schwarzenegger responded with, "I literally just said I need a vacation. I think it fits." She like, was. I, I find the line "I need a vacation" far more cheesy and corny. Than the thumbs up. Yeah. I think the thumbs up was like the perfect, like cherry on top for showing how Human. the Terminator evolved yeah. from yeah. this mindless, emotionless killing machine to the point of I don't need anybody to show me or tell me this is the moment to give a thumbs up. He just knew to do it because he knew not only to do it, but he knew John was hurting. He wanted to make him feel better and everything. No, fantastic character development. Linda yeah. Hamilton can. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it. I know, what you, I know what you're thinking. Robert Patrick absolutely hated the scene where his character had to kill the dog because Robert Patrick is basically you with big dogs. Like, there are videos and still images of him just, oh, just sitting on, on the ground with that German Shepherd, and he got to keep the dog. Wow. Well, that's, that. awesome. that's awesome. One of the scenes that got cut from the theatrical edition that... Both James Cameron and Schwarzenegger lobbied very hard to get to stay in, but were ultimately overruled, was the scene in which they opened up his head to oh, get yeah. the chip out to change it over. Because that's a very important scene in Absolutely. John getting his mother to understand, like, if I'm supposed to be this great military leader, don't you think you need to start trusting my judgment in some way? Instead, they had also filmed some dialogue talking about what was happening, so they instil- inserted that instead to imply that you know, he was changed over for that reason. I, I think that was one of the scenes that probably absolutely should have stayed in the film. Personally, I really enjoy the director's cut and think the director's cut is the better version of the movie. Absolutely. That's, but I can watch the, the the theatrical and still be okay with it. There, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've seen a director's cut that after watching it, I was like, nah, I prefer the theatrical cut. Like, I just, I'm a sucker for director's cuts. I like them. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help it. Like, I can own a movie, see a movie, like, have it on DVD, Blu-ray, and everything else, and be like, I love that movie, and then out of nowhere. Like, hey, first time ever, we're releasing the director's cut, and I'm like, oh, now I gotta go buy that. (laughs) You know, like, that's just, yeah. I love director's cuts, especially with Daredevil right there. I see it up on you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the theatrical version of Daredevil is what I see. Yeah, I don't own the director's cut, unfortunately. Um, I got two copies. I got both. (laughs) Post-production ran very, very close to theatrical release. There were a lot of delays due to the effects rendering, predominantly the T-1000. Um, the production crew was forced to work 24-hour shifts sleeping on set, and the release print of the film, this is the movie that got released in the theaters, awesome. was delivered to the theaters three hours before opening day. That's hilarious. You talk about cutting it close. Whoo. That's hilarious. 
10 months worth of pre and post production was spent on the effects and to and between 15 and 17 million dollars of the budget was spent on the effects as well. 5 million of that alone was spent on the T1000. Industrial Lights and Magic, the Stan Winston Studios, Fantasy 2 Film Effects, Forward uh, Productions and the Pacific Data and Video Images companies were all contracted for the effects of the T1000. Everything that was done in this film, in this movie, all of it, whether it's the explosions, things to do with the T-1000, things to do with the T-800 getting mangled or whatever. 42 to 43 shots were done with CGI involved. The other 50 to 60 involved were just with practical effects. The T-1000 was very difficult to, to properly do. Oh, yeah. Um, the effects, if they were not going to be able to match it meant they needed to do a lot of other practical effects to disguise this. Like when he has the hooks for his arms, initially those are effects, but after a while that he's holding prosthesis. The blades coming into that was genuinely a blade coming into that, and then they only used the effects to make the line appear in the hooks, and then they became practical again when they pulled the elevator door open. Things like that. Uh, they took, it would, for example, 35 ILM workers required for the five minutes total of screen time for the effects involving the T-1000 in all that movie, this process was so complex that 15 seconds worth of footage would take 10 days to render properly. An interesting similar effect was in The Abyss, mm -hmm. which I, The Abyss came out before T2, right? That's what I thought. Pretty sure it did. Uh, I'm pretty sure The Abyss came out in 1990. Oh, so yeah, the, 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 the CGI, the vast, vast, vast majority of the CGI budget was used for just the T-1000. 89. 89. That's what I was thinking, but I wasn't sure. Uh, everything else was practically done stunts, like explosions, whatever the case may be. He, they, they did them more than they needed to. Uh, James Cameron also had a habit of going off and exploding ordnance just for fun to try and blow off some steam during the production. The composer for T1 returned for this film, but he wanted to make he wanted to change the way the score sounded for this because the first film was very synth heavy, very yeah. Like it's cold, mechanical, like because the Terminator is the villain for that. They wanted it to be more warm and more grandiose and orchestral to imply that, you know, this is for humanity's sake. Also, Jim Cameron wanted there to be as much rock music as possible in this movie. As far as the Terminator's theme goes, like the, the overall score and mm -hmm. everything, I prefer the slowed down version of this film than the faster tempo that, like, at the end of the original Terminator, like when she's driving off and everything. I, I prefer Terminator 2's uh, yeah. version of the theme. Uh, that da dun dun da dun. I I do that whether it's on a keyboard or with my hand or whatever. I do that at least once a day because it's been stuck in my head for thirty years at this point. That was my ringtone for a while. Yeah. The problem is the composer had to make about eighty percent of the score without seeing the film along with it because it was being still worked on. So he had to come up with all these different cues and everything just based on subtle hint of it would be a scene for this kind of thing or a scene for that kind of thing. Considering that, I think he did pretty damn good. Agreed. 
Guns N' Roses' You Could Be Mine was chosen as the lead rock theme for the movie to the point that a music video was made for advertisement that involved the band being chased down by Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800. I mean, it was Axel. No, here nor there. Didn't they include that in uh, Salvation or was it a different song in Salvation? No, uh, yeah, you're, uh, there was a snippet of uh, uh, You Could Be Mine in, uh, in Salvation. Which was important because that actually, that same snippet was in this one when John was on the was working on the bike before he left at the beginning of it. And that was like an interesting tieback to he used that song again to trick a Terminator to come to him. They initially wanted the an early summer release, like late May, early June. There was a lot of competition that year for summer release movies, including City Slickers, Hudson Hawk, The Rocketeer, What About Bob, Point Break, Backdraft, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood film, amongst others that came out. To that end, and to make sure that they had as much attention on it as possible, one of the things that was in Schwarzenegger's contract was that he had to be heavily involved in marketing oftentimes working his appearances and his marketing things around shooting schedules for other things that he was doing. Despite the R rating at this film, it appeared to be targeted more for a younger audience. If you look at this movie, it's R based solely on violence. Like there's no real sexuality in this. There's some language, of course. But the vast majority, it's not disturbing. It's not even gore, really. It's just people being shot or thrown or whatever. I mean, I don't put a whole lot of whole lot of stock into the the ratings of a lot some of the older films and all that kind of stuff. So let's keep in mind the original Planet of the Apes is rated G, and they used the word GD in that. That was like, before the PG thirteen rating there's, existed. There's, there's yeah. male nudity and like and all yeah, that but, stuff. It, yeah, but the the G rating used to encompass a heck of a lot more than what we yeah. think of it as now. Like you and I watched uh, the Great Outdoors not too long ago. No, we didn't. You and I. You and I watched The Great Outdoors <laughs> not too long ago. Sorry. Wrong friend, wrong friend. That's right. We watched Dagon not too long ago. You and yeah. I watched The Great Outdoors not too long ago. The language that was used in that for that to be a PG movie today would probably be PG-13. <clears throat> well, I mean, look at the language and even the nudity that's in Titanic. Yeah. PG-13. Yeah. If it was released today, it'd more than likely be rated R. Possibly. Uh, they held two private screenings of the film before its wide release on the third. The second screening was done with members of the Academy as well as a bunch of actors that reportedly the film got a near 15 minute standing ovation upon the credits being reached. People in that were at this event included Maria Shriver, Mel Gibson, uh, members of the 1991 San Francisco 49ers amongst other, like uh, this was a big deal for this private screening. They really were banking on this movie being a success. It was released wor- uh, worldwide on July 3rd of 1991. It's opening two-day weekend. It pulled in $31.8 million. Over its opening five days, because it was over the holiday weekend, it pulled in an additional 52.3. By the time of its second week, it had pulled in $20.7 million and still remained at number one. And then by its third week, it pulled in nearly 15, also remaining at number one. It stayed in the top five for 12 weeks straight and the top 10 for a further 15. 25 to 30% of the audience was younger repeat viewers to the point that people were reporting kids 
coming up to the ticket box on skateboards to buy tickets to this film, and they were just letting them go ahead on in. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it pulled in $204.8 million domestically, which was the highest of the year, ahead of the number two film, which was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which only pulled in $165 million, and Disney's Beauty and the Beast, which pulled in $145 million. It was the highest grossing rated R film of, at the time. It pulled in $312 million international, which actually made it the first film to pull in more than $300 million internationally as well. $520 million total for its entire theatrical run. It was the highest grossing film of the year, the third highest grossing film of all time, behind only Star Wars and E.T. I, I will say right now, if they ever do like a retro showing of T2, I would love Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure eventually I'll watch E.T. I, I don't know. I have no direct desire to do so, but it'll probably happen. I've seen it numerous times, and I've never understood the fascination with He that He looks like somebody took a bunch of Tootsie Rolls and mashed them together with <laughs> eyeballs. Like, not only do I not understand the fascination <laughs> with that film, but also people just like, they say things like, oh, E.T., like, you know, traumatized me and everything. And I'm like, Why? I think I know I know what scene they're talking about. They're talking about where he's dead in the ditch. And I'm like, I saw that scene. I'm like, he looks like a white dog turd. You ever seen a dehydrated dog's white shit? That's exactly what E.T. looked like in that. I cannot take that movie seriously. Like, I remember watching that as a kid, like, for the first time. I remember it and seeing that part. And I was just like, what happened to him? Like, is he dead? <laughs> like, you know? Like, and I talked to people and they are like, I was heartbroken and this and that. And I'm like, why? The puppet like, got up. <laughs> It was okay. It's not real. (laughs) (laughs) They said cut. Someone threw it in the back of a truck. Like, it's all right. (laughs) It was met with near total critical acclaim. There were some concerns about the violence. And I mentioned this to both of y'all earlier. I just want this bears repeating. One critic took issue with the scene in the Cyberdyne building where Schwarzenegger has the minigun and he's firing upon everything, his exact words were, I guess Arnold can now finally say he got one up on Jesse Ventura for using a minigun in Predator. It was impractical in that movie, and it's just as impractical in this one. Hey, um, you, you wouldn't have to know that critic's name. I you? don't. Okay. Where did you find out that he did that review? Oh, I went through old reviews on Google. Old reviews? Yeah. Okay, then. Because I'm going to find that guy. <laughs> And I want to see what kind of stupid reviews he's left for other movies, just so I can laugh at it. Because he's a moron. Titanic would have been so much better had the ship not sunk. It would have been a great film. Look, I wanted to go watch a feel-good movie. Instead, everybody died. Poor Jack. Moving along. <laughs> Again, near total critic acclaim. People appreciated the emotional pull, the weight of the movie, the story they felt was tight and concise. Everything like it, it was really, really highly well received. Uh, it won best sci-fi film, best director, best actress, best young actor, and best special effects at the Saturn Awards that year, while Schwarzenegger was nominated for best actor. At the Oscars, it won best makeup, best sound, best sound effects, and best visual effects. This was the first film to win an Oscar in which its predecessor was not even nominated. Hmm. In the post-Terminator 2 release world, Schwarzenegger officially supplanted both Mel Gibson and Tom Cruise as the top international star of the decade. Uh, he also It also formed a, to this day, enduring friendship with Jim Cameron 
that would cause him to come back and work with Cameron on other movies as well. Yeah. Uh, James Cameron dated, married, and divorced Linda Hamilton <laughs> yeah. from this movie. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why he fired off that shotgun right, right <laughs> next to her face. <laughs> Uh, the success of this movie caused 20th Century Fox to give Cameron a five-year, $500 million contract for 12 movies. Edward Furlong also became very in high demand going forward from this. That's why he was pretty and much... very high. Yeah, well, that's, that, was, that was later. He was, he was very... He, he was in a rash of things after that. The only good things... I, and I use good loosely when it comes to Pet Cemetery 2... But I really liked him in American History X. That's one of my favorite films. No, it's an amazing film. However, uh, Linda Hamilton was less than pleased with her reception after the film because she felt like, no matter what I do, people are going to want me to be Sarah Connor now. And Robert Patrick found himself typecast in movies going forward from that point. He was almost always cast in some sort of antagonistic, authorial role. And it's just, it wasn't something that he wanted to do, but, I mean, it, it gave him a steady career, so... And also gave us the magic that is Double Dragon. (laughs) The look on Ian's face. Despite the success of this film, throughout the course of the rest of the year, Carol Coe lost nearly $280 million and ultimately went bankrupt in 1995. Selling all rights, including the Terminators, for $50 million when they went out. I mean, Cameron sold it for a dollar, so I guess that's inflation. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but I mean, Cameron did it for specific ends. <sighs> this th- this movie has there's a lot to examine with this film. Yeah, there there truly is. There you can look at the various ways this movie explores themes of not just what makes a family, but what makes humanity mm-hmm. as well. I mean. Sarah Connor says it best at the end of the film, if a, mach- if a Terminator, a machine, could learn to value human life, maybe there's a chance after all. Like, that's that's very important. Uh, it also examined various, at various ages, masculinity versus femininity in lead character action roles, whatnot. Um, this is one, uh, among uh, along with the Alien franchise, this is one of the main things that people go after Jennifer Lawrence about when she mentions the Hunger Games <laughs> showing that women can be action stars too. Like many, many people were like, ah, you remember when Jennifer Lawrence influenced movies that came out before she was even born? Because basically that's what she's implying there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it cast a giant shadow that the franchise will probably never get out from under. Honestly. I mean, I, I I think it can it I think it casts a shadow that extends far beyond its its own franchise. Uh, to me, after it was released, it became the golden standard for action movies. Yeah, I'm still looking for that. Review. I was about to say you got, you got something to add on that one there. I and, mean, and, go ahead, go ahead. Not that, go go on. Well, I. You know, you mentioned, you know, that a lot of kids were going to see the movie. Uh, One of my, you know, childhood friends was one of those kids. He went to see it like two or three times. We both had the toys. Uh, I remember the video games, trading cards. Me and Cal had the same action figure at different times. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) At different times. Um, 
I mean, yeah, like I I uh, I remember watching you know the Guns N' Roses mu music video for "You Could Be Mine." Um, it it was inescapable. Yeah, it uh for everything the first Terminator movie did and and other films that Schwarzenegger did throughout the eighties that established himself as an action star. This one is truly what showed that he was a top in demand star. Like it, uh, this is where and the, we may have got, I'll be back from the first one, but his arguably second best known quotation, hasta la vista, baby. It also hinted at, uh, like the man's got acting range. Yeah. Some, some people might want to argue with me, but I think Schwarzenegger is a perfectly capable actor. He absolutely is. Have you ever seen Maggie? No. Where he, I, I, that, I, I that, wanted, that yeah, was I, outstanding. Yeah. That really was. I've got it on my voodoo. I just haven't gotten around to watching it. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, also, one of the things that people don't seem to take into consideration, the man's very smart. Oh, yeah. He's very intelligent. Yeah. I mean, Like Dolph Lundgren. I mean, both of them got like multiple degrees. They're very intellectual people. Well, I mean, Schwarzenegger was a self-made millionaire before coming to the U.S. Yep. Like He, he was financially secure just from bodybuilding. And Let alone real estate. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things that I found while researching this film, also while researching the first film, is that we all know that Cameron wanted Lance Hendrickson to play the Terminator. Yeah. Um, he was not the first choice, though. The first choice turned it down because he felt that it was not something that he was suited for. And after seeing the first movie, he personally congratulated both James Cameron and Schwarzenegger and said, that's who you should have used. The studio wanted Mel Gibson to portray the Terminator. In the original? In the original. I can see it. I mean... I'm just kind of picturing him like just more of an emotionless Mad Max. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I, can, I can see it. Yeah, like Road Warrior. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, also, during that same production, con when Mel Gibson said no, they were like, okay, well, look, how about Schwarzenegger? James Cameron was against it. In fact, he's gone on record as saying that when he flew to meet with with Schwarzenegger, he went there with the express intention of picking a fight so that he could go back to the studio and tell them that he was the wrong choice for the role of Kyle Reese. And while talking with him, he was looking at him and just fascinated. He's like this massive, muscular human being that, you know, he he has a thick accent, but he's also well-spoken despite that. And at one point told him just to sit still and drew sketches of his face and like include like various like little mechanical components and whatnot to try and see how that would look. So when he got back, he said, bad choice for Kyle Reese, but. And I mean, some casting choices really would not impact film that much. Like there are some characters that you can see, I can see so-and-so doing that, or I can see so-and-so doing that. In hindsight, with everything that we've gotten with it, Schwarzenegger was the best fit for the Terminator. Oh, yeah. It's like with Forrest Gump, the original choices for Forrest and Bubba were John Travolta and Dave Chappelle. That is not a joke. I'm aware. Yeah. How different that movie could have been. Uh, it wouldn't have been a success. I have more faith in Travolta being able to pull it off than Chappelle. Chappelle's not a bad actor now. Now. <laughs> but, um... <clears throat> And of course, the success of the second one is what really spawned the idea of a franchise. And to his credit, Cameron was not, he wasn't opposed to it, but he wasn't also endorsing that. He's like, I feel like because of the time travel aspect of it, yeah, you can make a thousand of these, but that doesn't mean you should. 
And boy, was he right. <laughs> <laughs> Arguably the best Terminator thing to follow this was the damn theme park ride. I actually like part three. I was I, I would say the the director's cut of Salvation. Oh, I really enjoy Salvation. I like, I like the theatrical and the director's cut. Salvation of was good because that was a very different film. It's those last two movies in the franchise that I wish didn't exist. Genesis had promised that it could not deliver on Dark Fate. All three of us have disagreements on Dark Fate because there are some things that I agree with you on mm-hmm. and disagree with him, but there are things that I agree with you on and disagree with you. The two of y'all... Polar opposites. I mean, <laughs> North, North and South Korea are going to see eye to eye before y'all see eye to eye on this film. It's just not going to happen. Um, it's, fun, not, it's not the first. No, and it won't be the last. <laughs> it won't be the last. Uh, Nick Stahl had expressed interest multiple times in returning to the role after he was in Part 3 as... John Connor, um, Edward Furlong. Well, he didn't. Edward Furlong was surprised and grateful that he, he they used his likeness and he was able to come in and do motion cap and whatnot for his return in Dark Fate, and then was immediately angry when he found out he had no screen time and was killed. I don't care about spoilers Spoiler on alert. Dark Fate. That one's it's the Terminator things. I I look. I called it with Genesis. With the way that movie went, I said, I guarantee you, the next film, we're going to get Jane Connor instead of John Connor. It wasn't Jane Connor, but it definitely was a, a female leader of the Resistance that was a different Resistance. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Terminator, like and many a things... Skynet that wasn't Skynet. Legion is and what it's called. a Terminator that wasn't a Terminator. An augmented human. John Connor that's not John Connor. Gee, it's almost as if it's the first movie, but it's not. Stupid-ass movie. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Terminator w- uh, was one of the latest in uh, a long line of franchises to be affected by what is considered the modern pop culture lexicon and modern um, wokeness, as it were. Uh, there are other films and other franchises that have fallen into this, and that's why when they say they want to remake this or they want to remake that, generally speaking, people that were fans of the originals are like, don't do it because it's not going to be good. Like, it's just it, it. It was something that honestly, as much as I enjoyed Salvation, and there were aspects of three, and there were aspects of Genesis that I thought were interesting. The franchise probably should have stopped with the second movie, even if they had video games and comics and whatnot. I think it would have been perfectly fine to end it there and not go forth with what was more. Film wise, I absolutely believe it should have stopped with two, even though I like three and I like Salvation. I think the franchise would have a much better standing overall in the public eye and in public opinion if it had just ended yeah. there. Agree. But Hollywood got to make that money. Yeah. The first Terminator movie I actually got to see in theaters was Salvation. So. Same. In theaters? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Salvation. Yeah. Because yeah. I was. Uh, That's the only Terminator film I've seen in, uh, same. in theaters. Same. Same. Actually, yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, I was not alive when the first Terminator movie came out. Uh, I was... When did the first one come out? 1984. Yeah, yeah. I I was two (laughs) when the second movie came out. And I was 14 when the third movie came out. Of course, Ian had children by the time the third movie came out. I believe I did. (laughs) I was 14, so yeah, you would have. Like, Ian's... The first movie Ian saw in theaters was was E.T., if I remember correctly. Yeah. Which came out in 1982. Yeah, I was two. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I like the joke that he was buying kids tickets to see uh, 
Wizard of Oz when it first came out, but I'm realistic when it comes to his actual age at times. Um, James Cameron did return to the franchise with Dark Fate. In a very limited capacity. In a very limited capacity. He did not direct. And once the film had came out and had its release and everything, and it was, it was unfortunately, it was the way it was panned, it wasn't going to continue going forward or anything. They asked him what he thought, and he said, in hindsight, it was possibly a mistake to try and recapture what two had by bringing both Linda and Arnold back to this. And while Linda Hamilton did enjoy aspects of making Dark Fate, she's 66 years old, and she's like, I can't go through another boot camp again. So if we're doing another one, you better kill my character. <laughs> and so I just... What well, one thing that really ticked me off about Dark Fate is that it was one of the selling points of the movie. James Cameron is returning. And so it's like, okay, he's going to try and fix all the mess that's been done. Namely, at that point in time, I was thinking about Genesis. But then whenever he comes on board, he didn't have near the authority yeah. that he did in the other ones. And there's been numerous accounts of like, I think James Cameron only visited the set once, maybe mm -hmm. twice. And there were multiple occasions where people would overhear the director, like, on the phone or FaceTime and, like, having a screaming match with James Cameron. And James Cameron flat out telling him, like, you're going to kill this movie if you do some of these ideas. And the director was like... It's my movie. Like, like it's my movie. Yeah. Like, all, all respect to you, but this is my movie and I'm going to do it. And James Cameron was kind of, he tried to stop him and he was basically like, dig your own grave. Yeah. And who well, directed that? Was it Tim Miller? Tim Miller. <clears throat> um, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate because I have very fond memories and opinions involving the first two movies. And I hate that it went out on such a whimper like that. I really do. Um, unfortunately, when you involve time travel in anything, you are opening up a, uh, an Olympic swimming pool of worms yeah. that can then cause your franchise, whatever it may be, to take directions that you would not have liked, that were not going to be good, that is not going to get accepted as well. But because time travel was opened into there, that's one of the biggest problems I, as much as I enjoyed it, that was one of the biggest problems I had with Avengers Endgame was that they brought time travel into it. Once they brought time travel into it, I'm like, you guys are opening this up to all kinds of things. As important as certain characters are with time travel, like Kang the Conqueror amongst others, really and truthfully, there's so much other stuff in Marvel that you guys could have covered. You did not need to go this route yet. There, There is a very big rumor that has some, some credit to it that the reason they brought time travel in is because they caught wind that the finale of Zack Snyder's Justice League series was going to involve time travel. The directors of, of the, uh, some of the MCU films have openly stated the only reason they did Captain America Civil War is because they found out Warner Brothers was doing Batman vs. Superman. Like, So they were actively trying to undercut them. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a damn shame because the Snyder Cut is superior to almost every single movie that the MCU has put out. Almost. <clears throat> and I'm an MCU hater. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say almost. <laughs> but like other things that have been like... That, that's one of the reasons why you do got to be careful. And ultimately, this the film can really be looked at as a cautionary tale of allowing your beast to become too unwieldy. Yeah. I mean, 
let's use another example, which actually is going to be the topic of the next episode. Uh, Jeepers Creepers, for example. The idea that the director came up with, and I'm not endorsing that director in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to make that very clear when we do the actual episode. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you once we're off uh, off air. Um, one of the things that he came up with on the idea of the beast, the whole every 23rd spring for 23 days, he specifically did that to avoid any stupid sequels being made. Then somebody pointed out, well, what if the first movie takes place on the first day? And he realized there could be 22 other movies that were made out of this thing that he would not own because the studio would own that. That's the only reason he made part two and had part two ending with it being the last day. So he's like, if another movie does get made, we're going to have to wait 23 years before it can happen. So hopefully it will fade by that point. But that's again, it's, it's a, it's a, an almost a cautionary tale of despite what success it is, there's always potentially something that can undo it. And you can't take away what T2 has done for film, not just from the effects standpoint, but from storytelling standpoint. You can't remove that because that was one of, like you said earlier, one of the biggest cinematic like plot twists of any kind was to make the T-800 a protagonist. Yes. And at the time that this movie would have came out, <clears throat> you would have had the theatrical trailer and maybe one TV spot. Yes. So it was entirely, entirely possible to go into this movie not knowing that the T-800 was trying to protect John. So the first instance of you seeing that would have been him going, get down, and shooting the, the T-1000 with a shotgun. Not me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I knew he was a good guy from the get-go. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, I, I remember seeing the spots. Yeah, it was absolutely possible to go in thinking, you know, at most, like, two Terminators were after, yeah. you know. Or maybe that the T-1000 was somebody sent back to try and help John, right. and that's why he was dressed well, as a cop the, to try the, and find at him. The, at the very beginning of the movie, it says that two were sent back, like one to protect and one to go after. And the fact that the T-1000, like, you know, almost immediately dresses up like a cop, you know, and you're sitting there, you, audiences are already very familiar with Arnold being the bad guy. Yeah. They would have no reason to think that there was a switcheroo that just happened. Not only that, but... To bring in a little real world perspective on this, this movie came out prior to the Rodney King riots and everything. Yeah. So at the time, there was not as negative a connotation surrounding the police department. Yeah. Like that was this was very much in that see something, say something. If you're in trouble, find a police officer; he will help you, kind of thing. And as such, dressing him up as a cop and whatnot, it was absolutely implied. Like this is supposed to be the good guy. We're trying to trick you, kind yeah. of thing. So, but I absolutely. Love it's one of my favorite movies. It's it's in my top ten. Yeah. The only movies I have that are above that are like my top four, which number one is the Blues Brothers, and the other three tend to change depending on my mood. But like T two is absolutely in my top ten and has been for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Arguably one of the sequels that bettered its predecessor. Uh, I think the others in the running would be what Aliens. Godfather 2, yeah. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. I mean. And of those that were mentioned, the only one that was not sci-fi was The Godfather Part 2. Yeah. <sighs> uh, also, can we talk a little bit how... You mentioned how, you know, the deck was... I mean, uh, the the deck was stacked against the Cameron. The deck was stacked? Yeah, yeah. The, the deck was <laughs> stacked against Cameron, you know, from Jump. Uh... The man has made a career 
out of beating the odds. Yeah, he has. We were talking about that outside a moment ago when we took a brief break. Um, neither myself nor Cal expected Avatar Way of Water to be as successful as it was. I, re- I remember the text message conversation whenever the news broke that he said the movie needed to make $2 billion in order just to break even. You sent me. I think James Cameron finally overstepped his bounds. And I, just, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of like, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Like, we just... It had been. I knew it was going to be successful. It had been 12 years since the first one came out, and one of the big things that drew everybody in was the advances in the effects and everything else. And by this point, that had become so standard that I was like, this is going to have to stand on its own as a story now to get its success, not just visually. Yeah. Visually at points, absolutely stunning. I will 100% give it that. Oh, I have, some I have seen it a second that. time since we have discussed that. I have a much higher opinion of it than I did after the first viewing. The first viewing, I sent, but I believe I messaged you, that was not good. Yeah. yeah. No, you, you sent me, while you were watching it, you texted me, Avatar 2 is not good. And I, I think I responded. Um, you said, you're going to see it yourself and you'll... No, no, no. It, first thing I said was... You appear to be in the minority. And then the next thing I said was, well, I'm going to see it tomorrow and I'll see. And I'm not trying to, you know, put you on the spot. No, go ahead. But, like, I remember, and I'm not going to talk about it because it's still a fresh film. It's still in theaters. I don't want to talk about certain scenes and all that kind of stuff. But there's a moment, I would say it's about 45 minutes to an hour into the film. And I'm sitting there watching it. And there's nothing even really spectacular going on. They're just, I'm just watching the movie. And the thought just went through my brain. Why the hell did Chris not like this? <laughs> yeah, he even messaged I, I could, me. I could not figure it out. <laughs> now, hey, look, I will. I, I am. I am never adverse to admitting if I was wrong about something. I really am not. I mean, I don't. I think viewed it. I would say that you're wrong. I mean, because art is subjective. Well, so if you didn't right. like it, you know, yeah. you didn't. Like I'll, it, I'll but... use another example on this. I thought the the movie, the Elvis movie. I thought it was. Eh, it was all right the first time I saw it. I was like, I wasn't really a fan of it. Ian and you went and saw that. Together. You loved it. Yeah. You spoke extremely highly of it. And I just, I didn't agree. And then I had a conversation with you, Ian. Yeah. And you said, don't go into it ex- expecting it to be as a biopic. Go into it as it is exploring the mythology of what Elvis was. Yeah. And when I went into it with that, with that, that thought process the second time, my opinion of it completely changed. Yeah. So, but again, all these movies that we're talking about, this kind of thing, we may not have gotten to this point without what we got in T2. The CGI effects that were done with T2 and the CGI effects and uh, practical effects that came out of the, the first Super Mario Brothers movie, which led into what we got with Jurassic Park, were it not for those advancements, cinema would possibly look very different nowadays. And dude, like, well, I mean, the, it would have looked like the practical effects from the original Terminator. That terrible, like, with oh yeah, doing his eye. But then, whenever the endoskeleton is like walking around, and it was all done with stop motion yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So who who knows? Like, if they hadn't have gone the route that they did with Judgment Day, like, and again, that speaks to the fact that, like, even with Judgment with Judgment Day. They had no idea if effects were going to work at times, and when they didn't, they had to work around them. Knowing that now, and watching that movie, it blows my mind it's that mir- this is a nearly perfect movie. Yeah, it's it's miraculous. And, you know, 30 years on, 
or 30 plus years on the movie still looks amazing yeah it the still effect, holds up the effects are believable uh it's uh it's, even the puppetry effects are believable yeah, at times. So, sometimes yeah. someone just when they're making a movie no matter what all goes wrong they catch lightning in a bottle mm -hmm. yeah like it happened with this movie it happened with spielberg doing jaws you know you you both know what i'm about to say but like you think of jaws <clears throat> a lot of times you think of like just the two note music mm -hmm. you think of you see it through the vision of the shark like he's going for the prey and all that and it's iconic, it's it's well known, everyone knows about it and everything, and then to find out, well, the only reason they did that was because the shark wouldn't work. Yeah. Which there is a full-blown stage production that is traveling around the U.S., I believe. I think it's touring the entire U.S. It may just be up in uh, more like the Yankee States or something like that. But it's called, <laughs> it's, it's called The Shark is Broken. And it, is a, it is a Broadway like play... About them trying to make Jaws and the shark is constantly broken. Like, I want to go see it one day. <laughs> like, I mean, like, it's not a musical or anything. I don't, it's just like a comedy play yeah. of like all the mess that went wrong on set. But Spielberg captured lightning in a bottle for yep. Jaws. Cameron did it for... Uh, Terminator 2. I will say this, and then we will wrap this up. One of the things that Schwarzenegger has said in an interview was if it were not for the, at times, stressful and hellish conditions in making T2, I think we all would have known that we were making something that was about to change everything. It's just that you can't see past that initial moment when you're under that kind of stress. So. And for those of you that are wondering, just going to throw out a little fun fact there. I'm sure you've heard me and Chris both refer to the Terminator as T-101 and T-800. They're used interchangeably, but they, they're pretty much the same thing. The T-800 model is pretty much the endoskeleton, while the T-101 model is with the flesh and everything yep. around it. It was exclusively referred to as the 101 in the original film, and then they introduced the 800 model in... Terminator 2. I, I've never heard one way or the other, but I believe the reason why is because it would have been confusing for Arnold's Terminator to be the Terminator, the T-101, going up against the T-1000. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you know what? Let's just make him T-800. Yeah. <laughs> the idea was that we only ever knew of it as a T-101 in the first one because the Resistance naturally would not know that much. Whereas... The they Terminator were, itself. No, they're not going to call it, you know, they, they just call it, it's the T-101. Yeah. Simple Whereas as the Terminator itself, because <clears throat> it's a machine, would know that it would know its statistics and would know its designated numbers and everything else. Well, and in Terminator 3, he refers to himself as a T-101 whenever uh, John Connor is trying to have a moment with him and everything. And like, you know, hasta la vista, baby. Any like, of this ring a bell? And he just flat out tells him, uh, he said, he's like, you don't remember any of that? And he said, no, that was a different T-101. Yes. So. <laughs> so, that being said, this was T2. I had a blast with this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, this is a movie that really could have hours worth of discussion about it that we simply don't have the time for. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful both of y'all were able to be here for this. I'm very grateful that Cal has gotten me to start making the show again. I've been dealing with some shit in my personal life, and it's very encouraging to put episodes out again and to get the response that I'm getting again. So I'm going to continue doing these bi-weekly for as long as I can. Um, next episode, in two weeks, 
will be on the Jeepers Creepers franchise with a most with a main focus on one and two, simply because the attempted reboot revitalization of it that came out this year or last year made me want to claw my eyes out. It was terrible. And the I, I'm not gonna lie, I find the first two to be terrible, so I don't know if I'm gonna join you on. If that, you don't, you don't. If, if I don't have anybody joining me, I'll completely understand I, that. I, Especially I, after we talk off air and I explain to you the issue, I would not be shocked if you did not want to. Oh, with that, the so. director. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that being said, this was T two. Thank you guys for joining me so much. I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.